Welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you are blessed by our content, we would appreciate if you liked and subscribed. It is an honor today to have on Dr. Bill Cashin on the podcast. Dr. Bill Cashin has been in ministry for over 50 years, 54 years, I believe, to be exact. Um, he's an adjunct professor currently with the graduate school at North Greenville University and is a, has been a pastor, missionary, and a seminary professor in his career and served in many roles. So, Dr. Dr. Cashin, thank you so much for coming on. It's a real pleasure. Well, thank you for the gracious invitation. It's good to be here with you. Yes, sir. So, I always want to give you an opportunity to share your story, starting you know with your testimony and then going through the highlights of your time in ministry. Well, I'm a local Greenville County boy. I grew up on the Mill Village at Slater, went to Slater Baptist Church, and under the uh, teaching of some wonderful teachers and godly pastors, came to Christ when I was about 12 years old. And then uh, God called me to preach when, I guess, around 16, and I started preaching when I was 17. Um, served Slater Baptist uh, for a summer as their student pastor, and then went off to seminary and uh, pastored in the United States for about 13 years. And then we spent uh, about 10 years in Venezuela. And then from there on staff with the Air National Mission Board for almost another 10 years in Richmond, which time uh, responsibilities I had took me uh, to churches in the States and also to 68 countries around the world. And uh, then uh, 2004, went back to pastorate for seven years in North Georgia. And then God called us about 10 years ago to come back to this area and start teaching at graduate school at North Greenville. As a full-time professor, I'm semi-retired. I'm a, I help them occasionally as an adjunct and um, have served since we've been back about 10 churches as interim pastor. Wow. So that's awesome. Yes. That's awesome. I want to start off maybe talking about um, your time as, as a pastor. Mm-hmm. You've, you've had a lot of experience, you know, um, in the pastoral role. What is some advice that you would give to you know, young pastors today that are, that are going into the ministry? Well, there's several things that come to mind. One, I'll go back to when, just before we went to the international mission field, I was pastoring in Greer. And just to illustrate, I could go to a Christian bookstore and very easily find books on theology and doctrine and uh, those kinds of things. Then we were on the field for 10 years and came back to go to the bookstore. And it was hard to find some of those books. I found more five to eight week Bible studies, which there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and uh, I say that to say this, the more I was in the, in the States, one of the big issues I saw because of the lack of strong doctrinal teaching is that one of the problems that not, not every church, we won't stereotype every church, but many churches is just biblical illiteracy. Just uh, people not being aware of what the Bible teaches, not able to defend their faith, not equipped. And I think that ties into another issue. Uh, I think maybe for the last 30 years, and I'm guilty. Anytime you have a criticism, you always have to take a look at your own life. And so I'm not being critical of others without searching my own heart. And I think maybe the last 30 years or so, we became more concerned with putting fannies in the pew 
than making disciples. And I think we really need to focus more. If we have smaller numbers but stronger disciples, eventually we'll have the numbers that we're looking for. Don't reverse that order. Uh, that goes into another uh, issue that I think, too, that I hope would be helpful. And again, not every church, but in some cases, I've observed that uh, the shepherd role is being preempted by the CEO mentality in a church. And uh, that should never be. A pastor should be one that loves God and loves people, uh, not a CEO, in some cases, a dictator. And so although those are our issues. And so advice that I would give to a young pastor would be this. And it's not original with me, but years ago, I became close friends with Dr. Henry Blackaby, and uh, he became a prayer partner. I called him when I was having a major decision made in my life, told him the pros and the cons for 30 or 45 minutes. He just listened. Finally, when I got quiet, he said, well, Bill, there's only one thing you need to know. Are you walking close enough to Jesus, staying in his word so that you can recognize his voice and obey it? And that was it. And that's what I would say to young pastors today. Make a priority of staying close to Jesus and his word, hearing his voice through his word, and then obey it without question. That is, that is great advice. Mm -hmm. And you've done, you've done this for a long time and, and you've had probably ups and downs in, in ministry. How would you, you know, call a young person um, that's in ministry or even just a young Christian, for instance, that's struggling, that's going through a difficult time, whether it's in their faith or in their ministry? How would, what advice would you give to them to persevere? Well, the advice I would be, again, would be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And when you look at his life, did he have pleasant days every day? No. Uh, and what did he do? Well, he would draw away. He would spend time with the Father. He would be renewed in spirit, mm -hmm. but he didn't give up. He was focused. In fact, he counted a joy to suffer, uh, endure the cross and suffering the shame. And so I would say this, it's all part of God's plan. And if you're having problems in your life, the best thing you can do is not say, woe is me, but wow. How can God handle this? And uh, stay focused on Him. Yes, definitely, definitely. Your time as a missionary, it, mm -hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe most of your time um, was spent in Venezuela or... or, or yeah, we South were a couple of years in Costa Rica and then the majority of the time in Venezuela. Okay, so on the topic of missions and evangelism, can you just maybe go through some stories there and how you shared the gospel with people in Venezuela? Sure, be glad to. Well, one thing... <laughs> I, when I went to Venezuela, had carried with me a sports background. Uh, I was uh, one of the chaplains for the old Greenville Braves when they were here. Venezuela's national sport is baseball. And I got in the country as a church planter, but the uh, mission board said, well, listen, why don't we change your title to sports evangelist? So I became Southern Baptist's first sports evangelist. Wow. Uh, and... Uh, but after a while, I went back and I said, change my title back to church planter because in my toolkit for planting churches, 
in evangelism is sports evangelism, but it's not the only tool. And so God led us in that setting to win people in the following way. Every January, we would have 100 to 150 medical personnel, volunteers from the United States come in and do uh, medical clinics across Caracas, Venezuela. And um, we usually treat about 13,000 patients a week. And we would see a number come to Christ. They didn't have to listen to the gospel before they were treated. They were offered the opportunity to have spiritual counseling. Then in the in spring, we would have uh, volunteers come and do children's work alongside our Venezuelan uh, believers. Um, and then uh, in the summer, we would do sports clinics, primarily baseball clinics. By that, we would have Christian instructors from the states. And as we led baseball players to Christ in Venezuela to do teaching clinics in uh, baseball schools and academies that they've set up in Venezuela. And... Um, and then in the uh, more the fall and winter months, we would have evangelism teams come in, preachers and people who like to go door to door visiting. And they had hoped before they came, all the seeds had been planted, and then they saw the harvest taking place. But one of the unique things that really turned things around for us in using that strategy was. Um, in one of the baseball fields, baseball park, real nice one, we had some of the old Atlanta Braves helping us. One who lives in Easley, Marty Clary. And after we finished our teaching clinics and parents and coaches and kids, several hundred people were present. They sat down. Uh, another player gave his Christian testimony. And then I went to Marty and I said, Marty, when he finishes, we're not going to dismiss. I, I want you to give your Bible study testimony. Uh, would you tell this crowd how you study the Bible, what it means to you in your family life, in your professional life, and anything else? And then I want you to ask them, do you have a Bible and you get to study the Bible? Well, he did that. Hardly anybody studied the Bible. The next question was, if we leave Bible teachers, will you join Bible study? And that day, 300 people enrolled in Bible study. Uh, I didn't have enough workers to send them to their homes. So we started having them come back to the ballpark before practices, and a church was started in the ballpark. But the key was getting them under Bible study, getting them in the Word of God. And the Word of God does its work, and it convicts sharper than a two-edged sword. And people, when convicted of sin, in trusting Christ and their converted. Um, and, of course, there are other ways that we evangelize. But when it came to, and, and one thing I would say also, Wilson, is we got away from asking people to repeat prayers, particularly in Catholic culture. They're taught to repeat prayers. And it's almost a superstitious thing for many. So we would tell them what the Bible says about whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if you believe that, Right now, as we listen, you say the prayer to God that's in your heart. Uh, to give you an example, before we went to that, one year we had 2,000 people repeat a prayer. We didn't see but a handful baptized and coming to the fellowship of the church. When we, the next year, when we said, start praying your own prayer to God if you mean it, 800 prayed to receive Christ, 
And out of those 813 churches were started. Wow. So, you know, sometimes I'm afraid in our evangelism, we might be manipulating people by saying, repeat this prayer instead of surrender your life to Christ. Mm. And if you mean it, you tell him right now. Right, right. When you were in Venezuela, um, just maybe for, for, for us that don't know, what was the attitude there towards Christianity? Uh, I, you said there was some, some Catholic influence, mm-hmm. but uh, were people fairly open to, you know, listening to things about yeah. Christianity? Yeah, the majority of the people definitely were. Now, we did have some opposition in one place that personally had hands-on starting a church. We were driven out of town five times wow. by uh, opposition from the local priest. But the people, probably more people disagreed with the priest that agreed with him. Uh, but he had enough power and authority to do that. Other people were very open. Very rarely did we have to uh, have a door shut in our face. In fact, it's hard to go door to door in the United States. Okay? But if you do get a chance to talk to somebody in their home, usually you, the idea is we got to spend 10, 15 minutes building a relationship, talk about family, talk about your answers, talk about this, and then go into the gospel. In Venezuela, you knock on the door, you simply say, I've come here to share some good news with you. I have that privilege. And then you, you start. And the people are very receptive. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I know that you, you have many stories of, of, of some times where you saw God work. Uh, maybe just maybe just one or two specific stories that you could maybe think of where you saw God work and maybe an individual um, yeah. or many, or maybe just a multitude of people's lives sure. there. Yeah, one would relate to a graduate of North Greenville. Uh, I had taught a Bible study in the New York Yankees Baseball Academy. The major league teams would establish academies looking for top players in Venezuela. So I left there and I was looking for Houston Astros Academy, which was brand new. I kind of knew where part of the city was in, not sure. So I go by a uh, bus stop, and there's a big, tall Venezuela hitchhiking. I don't pick up hitchhikers overseas. It's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. But the Lord prompted my heart to turn around and go pick that kid up. And I said, where are you going? He said, Houston Astros Academy. Well, that's what I was looking for. Long story short, he started attending Bible study in our apartment. And three months after that, came to Christ. Um... Studied English intensely. We were able to get him up here, enrolled in North Greenville. Uh, graduated, went off to Southeastern Seminary. Uh, then became a U.S. citizen, ma- happily married with children now. Joined the Army as a chaplain. And you may know who I'm talking about. His name is Jose Rondon. And Jose is a graduate of North Greenville. Uh, Jose was stationed at Fort Leonard Wood. And during the year or two he was there, under his leadership, uh, 11,000 soldiers best faith in Christ. Wow. Uh, he then was transferred to uh, West Point, where he was a divisional chaplain at uh, the West Point Academy and leading future officers to Christ. And now he's in uh, at Fort Benning in Georgia, still serving in the military, but most of all serving the Lord. The interesting thing about that particular story was how we met. And then in Bible study, my wife, who has a great sense of discernment, she would say to me, listen, 
that young man and his friend, they're trying to use you. They just won't get to the United States. I said, oh, no, they're not. Well, the day he got saved, he said, I've got to confess a sin. I said, what is it, Jose? He said, I had no interest when I first came here in what you were teaching. I just saw you as a ticket to the United States. Yes, sir. And so, but, so God now has used him to see thousands come into the kingdom. That's wow. one example. Wow, that is awesome. Talking about Venezuela specifically, yeah, things are, pro are much different now um, yeah. for the country, unfortunately, with, with many of, uh, would, would you be okay with maybe touching on some of the issues now that this Venezuela is dealing with or just sure. how it was when you were there? Yeah, I don't mind at all. I still stay in touch with pastors and believers uh, through social media, and they're suffering a lot. Uh, some of the pastors have chosen to leave the country. Others, I'm very close to, have asked our prayers as they contemplate, do they leave the country to protect their family or stay in the country to protect the flock, to be the shepherd? Most have chosen to stay but it's getting harder and harder. Uh, they have to scrape by every day to find sufficient food. Uh, medicines, very difficult to find. Uh, but having said that, even though the government is not supportive of evangelical work, under this type of pressure, they're seeing more people come to Christ and more churches started than ever they're staying faithful in spite of the possibility of strong persecution. The biggest thing you could pray for is that their needs be met for simple things that we take for granted, for food, for medicines, those kinds of things. Uh, I wanted to go back. I was taking volunteer teams in for years, but for two reasons I can't go back. One, government's made it too difficult to get a tourist visa, you have to go to Washington and apply personally, and then you're turned down. Uh, second reason is our Venezuelan believers say it's dangerous for them to be seen with North Americans. And the third place, can't take teams anymore because they can't feed them. So I think the best thing we can do for Venezuela is fervent, intense prayer. Definitely. Definitely. And just a little more touching about uh, evangelism specifically, touched about earlier, and it's, it's most certainly true that that there is, um, you know, biblical illiteracy in the church today. But sharing the gospel is still very important, and we'll talk about discipleship here in a second, of course. But in terms of sharing the gospel, evangelizing to others, since you've had so much experience doing that in both the states and mm -hmm. out of the states, for us, just the lay the layman Christian, mm -hmm. how can we? share the gospel with others and um, be confident in doing so. Well, um, don't hear this as a criticism because uh, over the years, I've been trained in about every evangelistic program for personal evangelism that's out there. Uh, the old evangelism explosion, which is still around, CWT that Southern Baptist had, uh, the faith program of, of evangelism, uh, and on and on I could go, four spiritual laws, all of that. And they're all good. But one of my concerns is I'm afraid that the programmatic approach 
where people were taught, let's go out on Monday night or Tuesday night or whatever, has taken the place of a lifestyle of evangelism. That's 24 hours a day if you're awake that long and seven days a week. So my heart's desire is that we make disciples who see every person they meet as a divine appointment. Uh, now, for example, one of the things that I'm teaching to train people in evangelism today is how to use an invitation to church as an open door for evangelism. For example, it's easy to invite somebody and say, hey, would you come to my church? And that's we should. But why not take it a step further? And if a person, no matter what they say, yes, I'll think about it or no, why not follow up and say, well, if God does give you the privilege of being with us for a day of worship, I don't want you to be surprised by anything. So may I tell you a little bit about my church and just tell them a little bit. And also, I don't want you to be surprised by what we believe. May I share with you what we believe? I've never been turned down when I've asked that question. And so then you go in and share the gospel, what you believe. And whether or not the person receives Christ or not, there, good possibility is they'll come on and come to your Bible study or they'll come to worship. Once they're there and they are with you, you walk them back to their car. What did you hear? You have a question about anything you heard today. What do you think about the pastor's message? Uh, is there anything God's saying to you that I can help you with? And you can do that with the people you work with, you meet in a grocery store, on a sports field. You can take, you can invite people to come and be a part of your fellowship, but then take it a step further and use these things to open the door to share. That's really good. I love what you said, treating each, treating each um, time you meet a person or each, each interaction with a person as a divine appointment. Mm. That's really good. And then when we get people into the church, um, uh, we talked, uh, one thing I was going to ask about is the biggest issue in the American church today, I think that you might have mm. already touched on it, is discipleship. Mm -hmm. um, Talk about a dis discipleship in churches and how we should we should go about about that. Well, I think it's getting a little bit better in the way we receive people as members. You know, uh, when I first started, you just gave an invitation. People walked the aisle and they said, "We want to become part of your church, or we're accepting Christ, whatever. We want to move our membership." And you celebrated that and said, "All in favor?" And he opposed. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to do in the culture today. And so what, what I encourage, the initial step of discipleship is look at how are you receiving members in the church. For example, my last pastorate, uh, we just started discovery classes and they were five weeks, uh, two hours for five Sundays, every Sunday, during the Sunday school hour and the worship hour. And one of my associates would teach it. And we go over again uh, the essentials of salvation, uh, what it means to grow in Christ, something about that church that they're, they're asking to join, something about the partnerships that church has with other uh, evangelical groups and uh, expectations of church membership. 
And you go through all of that. At the end, we would always say, now, you've heard what the gospel is. You've heard what this church stands for. If you believe this is where God is leading you, now fill out this little card. Mm. And that associate then would bring them back to the worship service when I was giving the invitation. And sometimes there might be 15, 20 people walking at a time to unite with the church. Now, also, a good thing about that approach is we did have several families when they heard, well, you mean you believe that? We don't believe that. We can't stay here. But it's better to know it then right? that they couldn't agree with something in the church than later on. So that's the first step of making disciples. It, well, in addition to um, being sure that we have a proper process for receiving members, and that's initial discipleship, then, of course, we want to get them into small groups and it's good to, if a church can do so, to even have one-on-one -on -one mentoring, uh, mature disciple taking a new believer and, and working with them. But also, I think one of the big issues that uh, I, I hope we're addressing better than when I started years ago is discipling those that would take leadership positions in ministry teams, uh, in, in the organizational structure of the church. Uh, I can think many, many long nominating committee meetings where we would try to figure out how to twist somebody's arm to get them to take a position. That's not the best thing to do. First of all, to get leaders, you do what Jesus said. Pray the Lord of the harvest to thrust out laborers into his harvest. That applies not just to mission field, that applies to local church. Right. And I would spend, I would, first of all, when it comes to discipling leaders, start with prayer meetings. Be sure God's giving you the people. He wants you to prepare to be a leader. And then spend time. Sometimes churches thrust people into leadership positions, and they get there, and they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing because nobody took time to disciple, nobody to, to equip them, to train them. So I think those are some of the major things we could do to help yes. strengthen the church. Yes, most definitely. One thing that, you know, Scripture touches on, there's on a lot as well, is unity in the church and the importance of fellowship. Um, as a pastor, what are some ways you try to, to you know, bring unity in the church and, and have fellowship and, and have the body be together and also, um, you know, show love towards each other and grow and grow in those relationships with each other? Well, first of all, a pastor should uh, be a peacekeeper. Jesus said something about a blessed peacekeepers and should never be one that's perceived as taking sides. Even if you have to be very direct with someone that may be in error, you still do it in love. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, division is never helped by anger, by strong words, by dividing up the flock. And so it just goes back to the simple thing that we've all said over and over. First of all, love God and love people and love even the ones that disagree with you. And when the church sees that a pastor is loving uh, people who are hard to love, well, they'll start loving them too. And the people who are hard to love, 
what does the scripture say? Love covers a multitude of sins. Their hearts will become tender. Now, not in every case, but in most cases, that will, that will help promote unity. And then, of course, um, we'll try to do everything you can to avoid the groups in the church creating cliques, you know, trying to find a way to, to intermingle. I've even said that one Sunday I'm going to go in where I'm interim pastor and say, all of you sitting to my right, I want half of you to move over here to, but with these who are sitting on the left, half on the left, go over here and sit with those on the right and just get to know one of them. And take, we might have a 10 or 15 minute welcome period. We just get to know one. Because lots of times, you know, I could close my eyes and tell you where somebody's sitting in church and they've been sitting there for years and they don't even know the person across the aisle from. So those kinds of things, and of course, is opportunities for uh, people not just to study the Bible together, but to enter into some some fun activities where they, they spend time in fellowship. Right. But I think the greatest thing you can do is to get the heart for God that leads you through a heart for souls and people together are winning people to Christ. Amen, definitely. Part of the reason it's so important for the church to be unified and to have discipleship and also know why we believe what we believe and know, know scripture is persecution mm -hmm. is coming mm -hmm. um, in America. And we see maybe uh, mm -hmm. some of it now, but what we know that it's, things are not necessarily mm -hmm. going to get better. I know you've been doing some, some work and some study in that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what, what we could be seeing here in, in the coming years in America, the American church? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's already indications in this last week's news cycle. Definitely. Uh, our heart breaks for the six who were killed out in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and, uh, you know, first of all, we need to love everybody regardless of their sexual orientation. Okay, I want that to make that clear. I have had homosexual friends, those who say they're transgender, and I don't agree with the lifestyle, but they're God's creation and I will love them uh, while disagreeing with them. But when it came out, the one who did the killing identified as a transgender. I don't know if you noticed in the news or not, but major transgender organizations immediately began to blame Christians. It's, this is the only way this person can express themselves. I mean, that's actually it was said very publicly by an organization representing transgenders. That's a prelude to persecution. You blame Christians, but it was Christians who were killed. So good has become evil and evil has become good. And you see it more and more. And... Now, for example, if you express your views on the subjects that I've just mentioned, you're immediately classified as a bigot, homophobic. Uh, even if, uh, you know, I've taken, I take students at North Granville and we dialogue with other religions, with Buddhists, with Hindus, with, you know, we go to the mosque and dialogue with the imam at the mosque. Well, if I was to say simply that the claims of Christ are totally counter to the rules and regulations of Islam, somebody out there is going to say, well, he's Islam, Islamophobic. And now free speech is being attacked. 
all of that, if you look back in history, particularly uh, in, in the 40s in both Japan and Germany, first thing being attacked was free speech. And we're seeing that here in the United States. Uh, so how does the church respond? We better be making disciples who have the scriptures ingrained in them. So if persecution comes, it causes them to lose their job. They immediately look to the one who can supply their needs. If persecution comes, it causes mental anguish, separation, families dividing. They need to look to the one who says that he will give a peace that passes understanding. If physical persecution comes, what do they do? Scripture tells us, I mean, it's, it's terrible. We don't want anybody to suffer physically. But we're told right now, even more than praying for deliverance, that we pray for their boldness, that they would stay true to the faith. I hope that we have believers in churches that can. But in the American church, and I, again, I don't mean to be overly critical, I've often wondered how many would even come back to church if the trappings were taken away. What if we said, all you have to do, all you have now left is to come to this place as a Bible and prayer. There's not going to be any special programs. There's no choirs. There's no praise bands. There's no special lighting. There's no smoke effects. There's nothing but the Bible and prayer. How many would come back? Wow. That's so. That so we need, to be, we need to be working to strengthen the inner man for the outward persecution. Yes, yeah. I saw a quote um, the other day that said, if we do not, if we do not disciple um, people in our church, they will be discipled by the adversaries that... Oh, oh they are. Oh, um, they are. Talk about, that, that was really interesting what you said a second ago about taking students to different mm-hmm. dialogue in other religions. Can you talk about that? Because I, I just found that fascinating where y'all, y'all would go to, um, I guess, synagogues, mosques, stuff like that, and talk to other religions and yeah um and while i was still full-time and i would teach world religions uh, at the grad school i would always try to set up at least three field trips and one every year was to the islamic mosque at taylor's wow and uh, they would feed us pizza we got there very very cordial very nice and uh, on one or two occasions that we went over the years, they didn't have an imam. They were being by, guided by lay leaders, and we would meet with them. At other times, we would dialogue with the imam, and they would give us just an old— of, Sorry, just out of curiosity, who's the imam? Imam, sure. imam would be equivalent to a, a pastor. Okay, thank you. I just the imam is the, the head teacher. Okay. Uh, and by the way, it's interesting. The last imam was there— one of our students said, for our pastors to become pastors, while it's not necessarily required, most of them go through these educational steps, seminary and so forth. What did you have to do to become an imam? He said, well, the first thing is I had to memorize the Quran. Wow. That's the size of the New Testament. Wow. Then I had to say it from memory to seven different imams. Oh, my goodness. At different times. <laughs> then I'm an imam. Wow. Well, they know what they believe, you know. Yeah. And uh, But anyway, we would dialogue, and uh, they would, of course, 
try to convince us why Jesus couldn't be God in the flesh. And then we would have opportunity to respond to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, never in an argumentative way, but very clear and bold way. And then I've taken them to, uh, there's a Buddhist temple in the area, taken them there. Um, taking them to a Hindu uh, down in uh, North Georgia. Well, just above Atlanta, that's an amazing temple to see. Uh, but there's always opportunities like that in uh, most, even churches, church leadership could call up any of these places and say, I'd like to bring a group of people to learn more about your faith and us dialogue. They'll be happy to set it up. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. And I imagine that that would, for the students, um, encourage them to strengthen their faith. Oh, yeah. And, and know why they believe what they believe yeah. because uh, they, they can see that, that there is, although cordial, there, there are people that believe different things and they know why they believe believe themselves. So mm -hmm. I imagine that was a, that's a really cool experience. And Yeah, and it was always gratifying to see at the end when we would have an opportunity to share that I would always have several students that were strong in the scriptures wow. and they could share with uh, this is why we believe Jesus is who Jesus says he is. With Christian education, you worked in Christian, Christian education for a long time as a professor, mm -hmm. um, still an adjunct at mm -hmm. Greenville now, helping with the doctoral program. So talk about some of the things that, that, you, that you always tried to instill in Christian education. I love the, the, the field trip there, um, the world religions. I think that's, that's awesome. But just some of the things that are important for Christian education today. At the graduate level, teaching there or, yes, sir, in, or the, just, in the local church? Or? Um, maybe just in, in the local church, maybe some things you can see maybe in both, in both fields. Okay. One of the things that I, I, I even go back to my last pastorate on this one mm -hmm. that I wish we would do more of is scripture memory. Hide the word in your heart that you may not sin against God. Um, I'm sometimes, and forgive me for saying this because I'm not being critical of it, any educators, but sometimes I think we get too cute that we want to teach uh, processes and we want to teach techniques for uh, sharing our faith or even making a disciple. And we don't spend a lot of time in planting the Word of God in the heart. And and we live in a different day. For example, when I grew up and went to the old Slater Elementary School down here, Slater Marriott Elementary School, Bible League would come by and we would learn scripture in the public school. And we were rewarded for what we had planted in our heart. And a lot of that still remains with me today. But how much scripture memory is part of the educational programs in our local churches? Right. Awanas does a good job with the children. Uh, and as parents listen to them, maybe they're learning some too. But uh, I have been amazed at some of the settings I'm in. And I would say, how many know what Jesus said about this, 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 and nobody can give me a scripture verse? Or I would start repeating a scripture and nobody could re uh, finish it, wow. you know. So I think that's a big thing in Christian education is getting back to scripture memory. Uh, and uh, it is important how we organize our groups. It's important 
of the curriculums that we use. Uh, all of that's important. Uh, but here, here's another thing that I think we need to major on. And I think the pandemic helped somewhat. I was uh, at Forestville Baptist Church when the pandemic hit it, the first time I was in there. One of the pluses that took place is our children and student ministry started developing curriculums for parents to use at home. Hey, we way behind in doing that. Christian education cannot be done an hour or two on Sunday morning. It must be done in the home, right? So I think churches would be wise to look, for example, children's ministry. Why not have parents' ministry? Right. And equip parents. Oh, definitely. To be the disciples of their kids. Definitely. Yeah. Because if they're, I mean, if they're in public school, they're getting 40 hours of, you know, and thank goodness for our teachers that are faithful in public schools, yeah. but, but the curriculum and just the other students, if they're going to public school, right. they're getting a non-Christian message for 40 hours right. a week and they're, and they're being taught something that's in opposition. Right. Um, so, so, so important to have it in the home because if it's just for an hour or two on Sunday, an hour on Wednesday, it's just, it's not. The ratio is no. just too big. It's not. It's not. It's not sufficient. No. Right. And we're to complement what's going on in the home, not vice versa. Mm, Church definitely. is to complement, and we're to equip parents to be the uh, spiritual influences in their the lives of their children. Definitely. Definitely. It seems that you know, we look at Paul's letters. He he lays out the. Um, requirements for leaders in the church, but he also, you know, lays out the requirements for people in the home, um, because that's equally important is, of course, building the church, but building a godly culture, building a Christian culture in the church seems, seems very important as well, especially, it seems like today, um, in America where our church, our culture is going away from God, becoming anti-God, um, that seems to be more important now. So I, I, that's that is that is hundred percent on the money. Um, in your in your time as as a as a pastor and just with all your, with all your roles, such an important thing is um, having someone to walk alongside you in that journey. And, and um, your wife, your wife Kathy, such a blessing. And um, it's so important to have that relationship and to go through that together because mm-hmm. she's in ministry as well. Y'all are y'all are ministry together, right? Talk about that relationship just over the years and how important it has been um, for you and just for both of y'all. Well, it's super important. Uh, Kathy and I went to grades one through 12 together, so we've known each other a long time. And I recognized in my high school years that God had his hand on her. And God uh, called me. I began to pray earnestly that he'd give me the right helpmate, and he already had picked her out. In fact, when I was in the sixth grade, I told my uncle when I grew up, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> I did. Uh, and she has been proved to be such an asset. I mentioned earlier, she has a great spirit of discernment. And even greater than that is the loving heart that she has. Every church that we have served, she's not one who goes in for, uh, whether it's a class or the sanctuary and just sits down. There have been times that we started service that she's still up talking to people, going around meeting people, right? Ask uh, loving people. Uh, if you want somebody to pray for you, she's the lady. And uh, 
I tease her and call her the Facebook queen, but most of what she's doing is writing people well, notes of encouragement and praying for them. So, and and that, that has been so important in our life, in our ministry. And then, too, she's uh, over the years an excellent teacher of children. Uh, and even when we were on the mission field, she started a children's Bible club with 80 poor kids, uh, met with them every Saturday. And when the time came that God called us away from Venezuela, they surprised her with a reception in that poor community and where they were able to get the cakes and things that they had. And they sat us down uh, on a patio and kids and parents started coming like as far as you could see, not to say, we're going to miss you, Bill, but to hug her, to cry over her. Uh, great missionary she was. And by the way, I, I would say this, any who invite missionaries to their church, don't do this. Uh, say, we're glad today to have missionary Bill Cashin and his wife. No. I'd rather you say missionary Kathy Cashin and her husband. Because right. she was a real missionary. And we don't honor the wives. And we need to point. And like a pastor, too, if you pastor to come, be sure that you, you know, that she's not just the pastor's wife. She's his co-minister in, in Christ serving together. But there are many other things. I go, she raised three good children while I was 10 years parading around the world, she was homeschooling our third daughter, which we adopted while we were in Venezuela. And all three of our girls had been in Christian ministry, and I credit her for that. Right. Wow. That is awesome. That is awesome. And you talked also about earlier, you know, something different is um, is having one-on-one mentors in the church and, um, you know, with, with discipleship. You talk about maybe when you were getting started in ministry and just going through ministry, some of the mentors that you had that helped you out as you along the way? I wish I could say that there was more individuals in the church at that time that they had the they had the mentality or that had been led to think in those terms. Um, most of my mentors would be men that I began to respect in their pulpit ministries. Uh, I think of one pastor who introduced me to some biblical studies that I didn't know existed that really impacted my life. Uh, but as far as somebody that said, let's go out and have coffee together, I didn't have that. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, as I've gone through uh, my years in ministry, I've seen the importance of doing that. Right. And probably... I did more of that in Venezuela than I've done in the United States uh, and, and other places that I've traveled to around the world where I've spent time with young men. I've, I've done it here as well. I didn't have that. So God just protected me. Right. Wow. That's awesome. And did, did you find that in, in other countries maybe um, – People were more willing to have those 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 type of relationships. Maybe young men were more willing to have those kind of relationships. Not just willing, eager. In fact, sometimes you'd have to say, "I don't have any more hours left." <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, 
now um there there is one and I don't think he might be mentioning I think one of my students in North Greenville, I think I became a mentor to him was Will Beecham. And uh, Will was in my master's class. The first class ever uh, were night classes. And uh class was over and I'm usually home at a certain time, but I was real late getting home. My wife said, What are you so late? I said, Well, Will had a lot of questions. And so after that, every time I came in late, she'd say, Will had a lot of questions, didn't he? <laughs> He would just soak it up. He just want to sit and talk and, and feel like I invested a lot of time in him. And God's given him a great ministry at Locust Hill where he's serving. One last thing I wanted to do was, was give you an opportunity to talk about, talk about your book, The Winning Season. Yeah. Um, and, and just dive into that a little bit. Would you like to? Yeah. Um, I mentioned for 30 years or so off and oh, there have been so a few breaks in that time. I ministered to professional baseball players and amateur uh, from children on up. And so when I do a Bible study with all teams that I've served, in fact, when we went to Venezuela, God allowed us to start baseball chapel ministry with all the pro teams in Venezuela. And uh, when we first went in, we couldn't find a Christian player anywhere, uh, but through starting that ministry and it coming on down into uh, the youth leagues and the children's leagues. Today in Venezuela, there's a group called Hispanics Baseballistas para Cristo, Baseball Players for Christ, and 300 members who are sharing the gospel, baseball players. And anyway, I, I diverted a little bit. What I would do with teaching Bible studies, I would tell them a true baseball story baseball history, scripture passage, and the application. And so uh, I decided to put together 162 devotionals built that way. Wow. Because there's 162 games in a major league season. And so it's called the winning season, stories of victory from baseball and the Bible. And uh, like I say, there's 162 devotionals here. And we've had the privilege of... Uh, giving a copy to every member of North Greenville baseball team a couple of years ago, a number of high school teams and middle school teams. Uh, for, you know, there's probably given more away than I've sold, but for the general public, uh, anybody that wanted to buy one, if they're local, they can get in touch with me and you can get them for $15. If you order them off of Amazon, they're $21. I, I get rid of them cheaper. Uh, my main goal, though, is not making money because you really don't. Uh, my main goal is this book being used in a twofold way speak to the hearts of lost people and strengthen the faith of believers. And so the devotionals are built that way. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Are the devotionals kind of built like talking about going to maybe a, do they go through a story sometimes or? Oh, yeah. All of them have a true story from baseball history. Okay. And then scripture, of course, or the, uh, scripture is the even more important stories, right. the real true story. Right. But, uh, for example, if I have time, yes, I'll, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I won't read this, but uh, one of the initial ones is called Faith in Life's Challenge. And the story is, and I'll just summarize it, uh, it's about probably one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history, Nolan Ryan who in 1973 was pitching against the Detroit Tigers. 
And the first, first 14 batters that came to the plate, 12 struck out as he was en route to a no-hitter that day. Uh, the second time, the Detroit first baseman, an all-star, Norm Cash, came to the plate. He didn't bring his bat. He brought a ping pong. And the umpire said, now, you're not going to make a mockery of this game. Go back to the dugout and get your bat. Well, he basically was saying nobody could hit this fastball, so I just bring a ping pong. Well, the third time he came, five ways, struck out that second. Third time, he didn't bring his bat again. He brought a piano leg. And where he found a piano leg at the ballpark, I don't know. And the umpire again said, go back and get your bat. Well, he didn't. He struck out again. And... Uh, the question I always pose to the players is, now, he left his bat in the dugout, but he left something more important. What was it? And after a while, somebody would say, it's confidence or his faith. I'd say, yeah, you're exactly right. Now, let me tell you the story about a man who had a servant that was sick. And he didn't leave his faith in the dugout. He said to Jesus, you just speak the word. You don't even have to. A servant will be. And that's what this is around, that you, in life, you can come to the plate and bring uh, false resources, such as some people try to buy their way out of problems, materialism. Some people try to think their way out of problems, philosophy, and those kind of things. Some people try to look their way out through astrology and superstition. You can't hit a hundred mile an hour fastball in this live But even with a bat, Norm Cash, or even me, or you could stand up against Nolan Ryan with our eyes closed and take lucky swing and we might hit the ball. But you're not going to do it unless you use the proper instrument. And that's a bat in baseball. You're not going to have peace and joy in this life without the proper instrument. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Right. So that's one of the stories in here. And they're built that way all up. Awesome. Well, Dr. Cash, it's been a great pleasure having you on today. Um, really appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to, to talk about before we go or cover? No, uh, I think I'd just go back to one thing we've all, already covered, and I would encourage my fellow believers and fellow pastors, let's get focused on making disciples that will be prepared for the storms of this life. If you're not M1, it's just an interlude. One's coming. Mm. And the horizon seems to uh, indicate that the American church will be facing intense persecution in days ahead. We want to get our people ready. Yes. Definitely. One thing I failed to mention earlier is that um, Dr. Cashin is currently the interim at Forestville Baptist Church. And um, him and Kathy are serving, are serving there moment and so i know that that god is working there and we continue to um, pray for y'all in the interim space and get you in north greenville as well um working as an adjunct so so continue to pray for you and in, in, in your ministry as well and thank you for for all you've done i know you've been uh, you know i've grown up watching your revivals and and uh, uh learning from you so i really appreciate your ministry and, and your example so thank, thank you so much it it's been a joy watching uh, you and your brother grow up in uh, following in the legacy of your dad and your mom serving the Lord. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Cashton. This, is, this has been a great pleasure. Thank, thank you. For you. Yes, sir. Thank you.
I'm Wilson Paris, and that's a good word.